Last week, we found that Saul had been safely tucked away in Tarsus after his time in Damascus and Jerusalem. And now Luke is turning his attention to a significant event in the life of Peter. We've got Peter in the ancient town of Joppa. We've got a little scenario about to take place in a second in Caesarea. Peter is in Joppa. He's been walking around preaching and teaching, doing what he does. How, how amazing would it be just to be able to preach and have people just come to Jesus left, right and centre and miracles just follow in your wake and call that business as usual? Oh my, oh my goodness, that's, that's, just, that's just him. Oh yeah, oh well Jesus is turning up. Okay, here, here be healed in Jesus' name, be healed in Jesus' name. Yeah, just, you know, oh, you believe in Jesus, you want to follow him? Yeah, and just amazing. Just, I, I love what the Lord was doing there. It's all kind of business as usual. But sometimes when we get complacent, God gets involved, doesn't he? Even if we're coasting along, doing great things for God and just going, you know, sometimes we can kind of get into that cruise mode, can't we? What my dad used to call angel gear. My my, my dad was a truck driver. And there were these drives where you would uh, go down the Western Highway. You know it as the Dukes Highway, but it's the Western Highway once you get into Victoria. You get through Ballarat... You go down these beautiful hills after Ballarat through Bacchus Marsh and that, and you just put the vehicle in neutral and cruise. <laughs> just tap the brakes every now and again. You just run along. But my dad would call that angel gear when you're just running in neutral. Sometimes in church we can do that. Even if we're going at the right speed limit, it can feel that way. The engine might be revving, but where the clutch isn't engaged, you know? I think that might have been happening about now when God's about to step in. So the passages we're going to look at today are going to be acted out instead of being read. The references will be on screen and these will help us follow along. But the kids are going to start telling the story today and uh, they're going to kick it off with verse 1. Over to you guys. God, are you really out there? Lots of people in this town talk a lot about you and they seem pretty committed to you. I haven't grown up around here so all this talk of one God is pretty new to me. But I am very much interested in you. And I have lots and lots of questions. I'm working really hard to be a good man. And I sure hope you're happy with me. Can you show me if you're real or not? Please? Cornelius, God has heard your prayers. He has seen that all you are doing. He gives to the poor and genuinely interested in God. Send men to find Peter. He will tell you all that you need to know. Oh, jeez. The story begins in the city of Caesarea, in the home of a centurion named Cornelius. He's a captain of the royal army and a good man. He's good at his job, hence his current prestigious rank in the strongest army in the world. He's good in his community in that he's committed to the acts of charity and has the respect of the local Jews in his town. This is no mean feat. The Romans were the oppressors. They were the ones that were hated by the Jews. And yet somehow a Roman soldier is able to gain favor with it. Pretty cool. He's a strong family man. 
They too were respected in the community. He influences his family to pray to the God of the Jews. A lot of people who lived amongst them actually began to do this. The Romans who were occupying Judea and that were impressed by what they saw in the Jews. The monotheism, the one God idea. The moral code that they worshipped to. Considering what they had seen in their Greco-Roman culture, this was a breath of fresh air to them. But Cornelius is not a Jew. He is clearly defined as a man outside the Jewish community to the point that he isn't considered even a Jewish convert at this point. He is a man with a respect for God, but is not considered a true follower in any way. Despite the respect he had shown and despite the way he treated the Jews, there was a huge cultural gap in place. And the Jews, in no uncertain terms, would have made him very aware that he was a great guy. But he was not one of them. Cornelius is a great picture of many in our community today. Our city is filled with good people. There are many non-religious people in the community who are committed to doing good things. They're committed to their families. They're committed to morals that we might call godly. They'll even pray. Surveys in America reveal that 90% of all people survey admit to praying at least sometimes. And that figure has remained consistent for the last 50 years. Every musician you hear about The guy from Lincoln Park, people like that, whose language and all sorts of stuff on their CDs is pretty full on. We'll talk about praying before they perform. But these people, as good as they look on the surface, are not Christians. There is a missing link in their faith journey that needs a bit of clarification. And in the case of Cornelius, God had a guy 30 k's down the road who was more than able to set him straight. Just so happens to be Peter. We're going to pick the verse up in verse 9. Wow, it's an angel. I was just hanging back here in prayer just to see if the Lord had anything to say to me. And I'm glad you turned up because I was starting to get a bit hungry. Well, that's a good thing then. See there? It's food from Jesus. Take what you want and eat up. Okay. Eat.
but this is unclean food. Are you sure Jesus sent this stuff? I've never touched this stuff. And, and, and you know what? I, I never ever will. Yeah, God says you're a bit stubborn. So also, so he told me to say this as well. If God made it clean, don't you dare call it unclean. Oh, by the way, he also wants you to know you're about to get some visitors. He's sending them, so please be nice to them. Really, God? In about 780 BC, the prophet Jonah stood in the city of Joppa and he was looking for a ship that would take him as far from his ordained mission field as possible. His command was to go to the godless city of Nineveh. And if you know the story of Jonah, he was far from thrilled about that, right? Yeah, Joppa, Nineveh's east I'm going west. Give me to Spain, please. Now, eight decades later in the same town, the Lord has a new mission to present to a new kind of follower. And that new mission field, and that new mission is literally laid out on a sheet for Simon Peter. The vision presented to Peter was, to, was designed to shake him really, really hard with the Jewish mindset and by extension the Jewish Christian mindset, there were some deep-seated flaws in their attitude towards outsiders. They were actually quite evangelistic, but their theology on certain things had become distorted. And as a result, they stopped being an effective mouthpiece for God the way they were intended. God had been clear throughout the entire Old Testament about the influence on the world the Jews were supposed to have. And it began with the promise of God to Abraham. Out of your descendants, the entire world would be blessed, not just your little pocket of land. In Isaiah 2.2, it is told that the nations of the world would eventually stream to the temple of the Lord. How would that happen? Think about what the temple is. Think about what the church is today. And eventually there'll be a time, as told by Joel 2.28, that the spirit of the Jewish God would be poured out over all mankind. And Peter's already referred to that passage in Pentecost. The issue is that while the one true God had placed the Jews in a great position of privilege on the world scene, they themselves had twisted this position of election to a doctrine of favoritism. They developed an erroneous sense of pride and grew in disdain and even hatred towards anyone outside their religious position. The Gentiles were thought of as dogs. And worse still, the Gentiles were very aware of how they were viewed. It was hardly the open invitation for the world to know the truth through them that God intended, right? Today's church faces a major risk of falling into this same mindset. 
In many communities today, there are Christians who have taken their position of salvation for granted as if it was somehow deserved. I got here, I'm cool, everything's fine, don't worry about anyone else. And we get so ensconced in a Christian bubble that we begin to look with disdain on the outsiders. Unfortunately, the world around us knows it too. This is precisely the attitude that is present in Peter. And Jesus is all about smashing that down. To do this, he lays a wide variety of animals before him and he presents it as an all-you-can-eat buffet. And tells Peter to go ahead and dine out. The law of Moses made a comp- comprehensive list of things which were determined to be clean and unclean foods. Lamb and beef was on the menu, but it's not on this table. Pork was not. Life of that pork, can you handle that, kids? We we're meant to eat it. Mm. Crocodile was off, chicken was on, rats, well, that's a no-brainer, Tigger, (laughs) Tigger was off the menu, Mr. Ed, definitely, well, he's made it in there at times, oh, the US Marines, that's one of their, uh, Entry points to snakes. It's a rite of passage to eat a snake. It was all about symbolism. Bearing in mind that the Old Testament pointed to the frailty and uncleanness of men in the eyes of a holy God. But a Messiah from God would restore all things. That's a big idea of the Old Testament. In first century Judaism, these rules were enforced to maintain an over-the-top appearance of holiness. It was lost on them that at heart, things were unclean within anyway. This external expression here was just, you know what? I might not touch something unclean, but the state of my heart without Jesus, it's kind of like the thing I'm grabbing, touching, eating, partaking in. Peter was swept up in this thinking. Although his theology was somewhat evolved where he could take worship away from the temple and be okay, he still had this clean, unclean mindset. And this would actually do more harm than good when bringing Gentiles to Jesus. Peter was proud of his position of cleanliness and even states this to the Lord, I've never touched anything unclean in my life. You should be proud of me for that, God. But the truth is, Jesus was not. That's the reason he makes this huge reply, shouted out by the angel. If I declare something clean, don't go calling it otherwise. If I call something touchable, edible, partakeable, includable, don't argue, just obey. So with all that going on in Peter's head that we now come into verse 8. Verse 18, sorry. I come in. Are you Peter? 
Yes, I am. Good. We've come here because our boss told us to come and get you. He's Captain Cornelius, and he's a Roman soldier. The angel told him he has to meet with you. Mate, that angel. Man, he gets around. She gets around. All right, let's go. Hang on, I've got to take a traveller. Oh, Lord, I love these lessons the Lord teaches me. We found him, sir. We'll go now. Oh, no, please stay. This man has a message for all of us. Peter, I'm so glad you can come. I was praying a few days ago asking if this God that you Jews worship was real as everyone says he is. And an angel appeared and said all this cool stuff. Then the angel told me to go and find you. They even had your address. I do think really highly of your God and I really want to get to know him. But I think I'm missing something here. Can you tell me what it is? Wow. This must be a really massive thing that God is doing here. I mean... I shouldn't, I shouldn't even be in this room. You're a Roman and I'm a Jew and the wall hasn't fallen in yet, so we're doing okay so far. <laughs> Something God said to me yesterday has made me rethink this whole thing. And I can be in your house because God has done that. He even introduced me to bacon. I think this God you are trying to pray to wants me to tell you about Jesus. You've heard about him, but I've hung with him. He did so much cool stuff, and it was clear at least to me and my friends that God had sent him. But then Cornelius, your guys and my guys teamed up to crucify him. But I can tell you as an eyewitness that he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He rose again. It's him we're going to meet in eternity. And ultimately, he's going to be our judge. But now, in this life, he offers the forgiveness of sin to anyone who will believe in him. You feel something? I know what this is. Hey, guys, 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 I know what this is. This is the Holy Spirit. Can you feel that? He's touching everyone in the room right now. Jesus is real. He is, and, and he is alive. I believe in him. These people are not Jews. And I'm going to get in a whole lot of trouble when I get back to Jerusalem about this. But there's no denying what God is doing here. I can't deny that Jesus is calling these people and he's saving them. Guys, that means I have to call you family in Jesus. It's time to get baptized. You up for it? Awesome. You go out the back, I'll catch up with you. Jesus is clear at this start of the at the start of this portion. Go with these people. Without hesitation. 
as the Greek suggests, without misgivings or distinction. In other words, go to this new opportunity with an open mind about what God can do. And keep in mind, Peter, the vision you just received, it's going to make sense in a day's time when you get to Caesarea. And sure enough, it does. He gets into town and he's led to the house of a Gentile man. There will be a chance you could see the inner Jew coming out of him at this point. I'm not sure I should be walking in on this. Will the place hold up? Will God leave me at the doorstep as I go in? Will this destroy my credibility with the local Jews? If this goes wrong, I could be in a whole heap of trouble. This is where the church is getting pulled out of angel gear. God does that sometimes, gets us re-engaged a bit. When it's business as usual, he comes in and goes, you know what, I need to actually put a bit of friction on this and actually get, get you actually reignited with something fresh. This is part three of the Great Commission coming to be. Jerusalem has been reached, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, all of that has given the church a strong foothold. And now it's time for the outer parts of the world. This was a massive thing for, the, for this faith community to come to. And any faith community navigating this point, it's a big thing. We read here that this realization causes Peter to go right into ministry mode. And Luke gives some detailed insight about how he went about that. It's worth noting how he does this, given the audience that he had. In verse 26, Peter creates an atmosphere of equality. Cornelius falls at his feet and Peter stops him with a simple statement. Mate, I'm a man just like you. This is a conversation between two mere humans that God has ordained to occur. Don't view me as a God and I won't view you as a dog. Let's throw out the Jewish Gentile divide. Let's talk simply as people, about men, about the things of God. That's clearly what Jesus wants us to do. He then presents a very Gentile version of the story. Remember that the previous audiences had godly backgrounds to draw upon. They had some familiarity with Old Testament scripture and the process of the law. All they needed in that setting was clarification about where Jesus fitted into it all. But a Gentile was not as familiar. Even if he prayed and even if he admired the concept, scripture and ceremony was completely foreign. Peter was starting effectively from scratch here. With that in mind, we can then unfold his message a bit. This is it in a nutshell. Cornelius, I know you've heard things about this guy, Jesus. You've heard he was a good guy. You've heard he was a miracle worker. You know there was something pretty special about him because it looks like God was involved somehow. 
It's true. He was hung on a cross. It's true that he rose again. And I am a witness of it all. Peter was an eyewitness, but you and I are martyrs. Witness of the resurrection of Christ. We still are, friends. I stand before you convinced that Jesus is alive and well. I also stand before you convinced that regardless of your race, gender, background or class, Jesus wants me to let you know all about him. Jesus is the one all mankind is going to stand before when it's all said and done. And if you place your faith entirely on him, your sin will be forgiven. Judgment day will be a time of joy, not sorrow. And he says to Cornelius, Sir, you are so close right now. But without Jesus, you're still so far. It's as simple as that. And this simplicity was enough. From there, the Holy Spirit takes over. And everyone becomes aware of the living presence of Jesus. Have you ever been in a God conversation and you feel, feel the atmosphere change? Are you aware of your environment shifting when you begin to talk about Jesus to people who don't know him? Have you ever experienced that? I have. People are suddenly moved. You're talking to them and all of a sudden, sometimes they tear up. Sometimes they go, gee, something about what you are saying is making me stop and take notice. Somewhere along the way, something is shifting in the atmosphere. That is the Holy Spirit doing what he does, drawing people to him. The Spirit getting involved here was the final evidence that Peter needed to convince him that reaching Gentile was, was now part of Jesus' plan for the church. I mean, when God gets personally involved... What other evidence do you need, right? You know, it's a no-brainer, right? Oh, gee, God's getting involved. I should walk away now. <laughs> You're on exactly the right place. Then after this came a massive step for the church. Baptism, we kind of, we, we play it down a bit today and there's even movements that don't do it at all. But this was big then. Peter knew that God was making all this happen by now. And since he saw how accepted they were by God, he decided that that was enough to allow the very much Jewish church to accept them as well. And the waters of baptism was a symbolic act of doing that. God had accepted Gentiles into the Jewish church. These were outsiders with no links to God whatsoever. And now they're being welcomed by open arms. First by the Holy Spirit, then by the church itself. But then there's a backlash. Peter gets back to Jerusalem and here's what goes down. The apostles and believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised and ate with them. 
And starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Now, let's skip a few verses because you've seen it play out, literally. Verse 17. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And when the church heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so even then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. What business did Gentiles have coming to our God? We Jews, we're the promised people, not them. Peter's lesson's not been learnt by the rest of the church yet. Even today, it seems a few will only step out of the circumcised crowd, as it were. And there's sometimes this backlash for that in churches. There are pastors today who have the scars to prove that. When churches go into missional initiatives, when members of the church go, you know what, God's driving me to do something deliberately missional, and they'll come back and there will be a backlash. What are you doing reaching those people? But Peter had an ironclad defense. It was clear that Jesus was initiating this new thrust of mission to the Gentiles and Peter could prove it with four pieces of evidence. He had divine vision. He had a buffet sheet that Peter saw. Over in Joppa there, there was a vision that God gave and said, now it's time. It continued with a divine command. Go with those that are seeking you without reservation. Went on with a sense of separation, of preparation. Both parties being readied by the voice of the Lord. Did you see that? Cornelius has been spoken to, Peter's been spoken to, the two meet and God gets personally involved. And that's the last bit, divine action, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Notice how much of a human element there is in this. Notice how much of an element of choice there is on behalf of the church and behalf of the listener. And notice how much the Holy Spirit is involved. There's our key relationships in this thing. And if that wasn't enough for the church to hear... There was human witness too. Six Jewish Christians accompanied Peter in this task. That's seven Jewish human witnesses. In certain civilizations, the Egyptians, for example, seven witnesses was enough for an ironclad legal proceeding. In Roman law, seven seals were needed to authenticate an important document like a will. Or perhaps a future piece of scripture. The evidence was overwhelming and finally the church came around. There was no arguing against something Jesus was clearly doing here. One of the great scholars summarized the last verse of that verse in 11 really nicely. It says this, criticism ceased and in its place, worship began. Criticism ceased and worship began because of what God was at work doing. 
I know which one I'd rather be doing, eh? I'm going to wind up now. I've got two quick thoughts to finish with you and I'll invite the band to get up as we do this. Take these two thoughts with you, please. One, don't assume people are saved or righteous just because they're good. Oh, what do you mean by that? There's a passive universalism that rises up in the church today and I'm not liking it in the Western church right now. Just about anyone who goes into eternity, oh, they're in a better place now and we use it like a throwaway line. We treat everyone like everyone's just good enough to get into heaven. Why should I do my bit? Why should I speak up for the gospel? It's deeply urgent that we understand this church. It's clear that Cornelius has a high level of goodness about him. Even a sense of being devout and in the eyes of the Lord of the world considered righteous. The text shows that God was happy with his choices and that he made a good effort for good, not evil. He was only one step away from being truly right in God's eyes, in right standing with Jesus. But before Peter's visit, Cornelius was not saved. Let that sink in. The angel that visited him didn't present the gospel either. Instead, he gave Cornelius the choice to send for Peter or not. And it clearly appears, given the timelines and the travel times, that Peter's vision only appeared after Cornelius sent his messengers. He was told to send for Peter because Peter had a message to share that would set him straight. As good as he appeared to be, he needed to be preached to. He needed to come to repentance and he needed to place his faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith that saves us, not our own works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians tells us that. Not our youth club existence, not our church attendance, not our acts of service, but our faith in Jesus Christ. Faith here and now keeps us in a state of biblical righteousness before God. The other one is this, don't shun the uncircumcised. (laughs) What an awful statement, but it's such a heavy word in the scriptures here. Whomever God puts in our path who responds to the gospel becomes our responsibility as a church. No matter how much or how little they know about our faith or our people. This word, by the way, when the, Gen- when the Jews would look at themselves and, look at them and then look at their, the people outside their world, they didn't see them as people. They called them this. goes, you know what? We're a cut above, literally. This is how, this is how we, have, we have the bodily difference to remind us every day that we are different to the rest of the world. We are the different ones. They are not. And we're going to just call them that. 
It was an unfair statement. It was a derogatory term to give, to give the world around him. It was still in the church, even in the first century there. However, when I hear about the reputation of this congregation, I hear about the constant sense of welcome. I hear about the constant sense of, I fit here. The constant thing of, of I was welcomed, people noticed me. People weren't fussed when, they took my, when I took their, their seat. My kids were welcome and they ate all the food and we didn't get our Tim Tams. This reputation of our congregation is huge. This city looks at us that way. So when I come here, I'm not here to lecture. I'm actually here, I'm already preaching to the choir with this. So can I please encourage you, never, ever, ever, ever lose that. Never lose who we are in that regard. It's not about who we are and who they're not. It's people needing Jesus. If we come to that realisation with our arms wide open, with the Holy Spirit's arms wide open, it's amazing what he'll do, right, church? Cool. Let's close in prayer.